This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. You ready for the fourth way that these parents, and perhaps this is the most important of all the reasons that we call them true disciplers, this, the parents who had success in the studies truly believed they were the ones who discipled their children, and they wanted to develop their children's character. It was their number one focus. And that's really what's, what parenting is, isn't it? Character development and parenting are nearly synonymous. That's what we're doing when we parent, is we're trying to help point our children to Jesus in faith so they can develop a character fit for heaven. And so you think about all the different possible character traits that you could have, and we won't be able to exhaustively cover all of the different elements of Christian character today. That's a huge, expansive, exhaustive study that we're not going to do. But I do want to ask this question and then go through just a couple examples. When do you start training children's characters? From babyhood. Yeah, I think I heard the answer out there. From babyhood, the character of the child is to be molded. The parent's work must begin with the child in its what? Infancy. That's clear, isn't it? During the first three years of the life of Samuel, this is amazing. Samuel the prophet was raised by his mother for the first three years, and then for the rest of his childhood was was raised by one of the worst parents in all the Bible, Eli, right? Terrible parent. And the the life of Samuel, he was taught in those first three years by his mother to to distinguish between good and evil. That's what set him up to be one of the greatest prophets in all times. God has given parents their work to form the characters of their children after the divine pattern. By his grace, they can accomplish that task. But it will require, first of all, it requires his grace. I can't do that by myself. I'm not up to that task. And it requires patient, painstaking effort. No less than firmness and decision to guide the will and restrain the passions of that child. A field left to itself produces only thorns and briars. So this is something we are actively doing. It's not, well, they'll figure things out. No, 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 no. It's something we are doing day after day, month after month, year after year. The work is to go on till the character of your child is formed and the habits established in the right way. Christian mothers have performed the most important of all missionary labors. This sounds familiar from stuff we heard earlier this morning, doesn't it? Their children are the greatest evidence of Christianity that can be given to the world. Brethren, is that not powerful? Our children, when they are following the Lord, obedient, polite, reverent, character, Christian character-formed children are the greatest evidence of Christianity that can be given to the world. What a beautiful quotation. So let's go through various traits. Just hit a couple of these quickly. I've had to amputate a lot from this presentation. I apologize. We're working on an expanded Raising the Remnant that will be out in a few months that includes a lot of this as well. But how about health? The first study of the young should be to know themselves and how to keep their bodies in health. That's actually part of character development is health education. Recklessness in regard to bodily health tends to recklessness in moral character. Do not neglect to teach your children how to cook. In so doing, you impart to them principles which they must have in their religious education. Parents should train the appetites of their children and should not permit the use of unwholesome foods. The importance of training the child to right dietetic habits can hardly be overstated. Grains, fruits, nuts, and vegetables constitute the diet chosen for us by our Creator. Meat should not be placed before our children. Its influence is to excite and strengthen the lower passions and has a tendency to deaden the moral powers. So health, hugely important. How about truthfulness? I was thinking about this verse, Titus 1-2. It says that God cannot lie. So you might have learned as a kid, God can do anything. God can do everything. You know, he is omnipotent and all-powerful, but he can't sin. He can't lie. So our God is a God of integrity, perfect truthfulness, and honesty. And we want our children to reflect that as well. So don't lie to your children. Sometimes we parents, well, you know, sometimes we just kind of need to lie to them, uh, you know, for their own good. Let's let's, let's not do that. What are you eating, Mom? Nothing? (laughs) It's in between meals. We don't eat between meals. Nothing? Moving on. Yeah. How How about, do we do this with our children? We joke around. We joke in a way that distorts the truth. If we're making jokes, that, you know, that's very confusing to a small child, actually. Like, why are you saying something untrue? They don't understand uh, that sense of humor. How about these lies? Santa, Tooth Fairy, Talking Animals, Disney, other fantasy things that we, that we teach our children? I've got a quote on it. I eliminated the quote on it. Well, come back on Sabbath, and we'll talk a little bit more about, about fiction fantasy things as a part of the education segment on Sabbath. But 
Moving quickly on to another character trait, reverence. This is an important one. Angels are shut out from many a home where iniquity and politeness to God abound. That's a scary thought. So by your own example, teach your children to pray with clear, distinct voice. Teach them to lift their heads from the chair and never to cover their faces with their hands. Thus they can offer their simple prayers, repeating the Lord's Prayer in concert. We just applied this one with our three-and-a-half-year-old because he'd have a tendency to always pray with his hands in his face. And we read it out of child guidance. He knows what child guidance is. And he, 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 kids like the concept of clear rules and things from God. It's like this is what God has asked us to do, and that's how we do it. And to them, it's not some sort of legalistic, rigid thing. It's, we do it in a pleasant tone. The services of public worship, the child should be taught to regard as sacred because God is there. Parents should not only teach but command their children to enter the sanctuary with sobriety and reverence. But in some cases, the Sabbath believer's children are even allowed to run about the house, the house of God, play, talk, and manifest their evil tempers in the, in, in the very meetings where the saints should worship God in the beauty of holiness. This is enough to bring God's displeasure and shut out his presence from our assemblies. And also, while we're on the topic of church, children are too often found in groups, away from parents who should have charge of them. Notwithstanding, they are in the presence of God and his eye is looking upon them. They are light and trifling. They whisper and laugh, are careless, irreverent, and inattentive. Keep the family together to the extent possible. How about orderliness? That's an important one. You might say, oh, come on, how is that, why does that matter? You know, if you're a messy person like me, naturally, oh, that's not a character. Well, it is. I'm working on it. And we want to keep a neat and tidy environment because the kids will improve in health, in spirits, and in memory if they have habits of regularity and order. So all of these things, we benefit from it, both physically and morally. And I read this here, too. By these little things, order is taught. And I, okay, let me hear the rest of the quote. How do we teach order? What little things can we do to teach order to our children? Mothers, teach your children from their earliest years that they are not to look upon everything in the house as playthings for them. But let not the organ of destruction, which is large in babyhood and childhood, be strengthened and cultivated. Do not give the children playthings that are easily broken. But to do this teaches lessons in destructiveness. Here's what we should do. Let them have a few Play things, and let these be strong and durable. Now, some of us need to look up the word few, because you walk into most houses in America today, since the, uh, the age of, of, of free trade and you know, commerce internationally, we have all these you know, very cheap toys, and, 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 and we, they start to expand and multiply in our homes. So what do we do if we find ourselves, um, well, they accumulate here. We have more to... Give some away. What a great lesson for kids, right? Think about children that don't have any toys. Periodically go through the toys. You choose some to give away. We did this with my son. We had a pile of three. We, we put all of his toys in threes. And we said, you get to choose one to keep, one to give to church for, you know, for their toy bin for the other kids to play with at Bible study, and one to give to kids that don't have any toys. And so how about a later bin? My wife invented this concept for our family. She said, we have, we have too many toys just right there. So we have one bin of toys that is put away. And then we take that out from time to time and replace it with the other. That's the way, that way they're not swimming in toys and they have a few playthings, right? So then they're not overwhelmed with this too much stimulation, too much materialism. So this work of teaching neatness and order will take a little time each day. But it will pay in the future for your children. And in the end, will save you much time and care. So if we take the time to teach orderliness to our children, it actually will save us time in the long run too. Frugality. So we're talking about teaching character traits to our children, just some, some, a few examples. This is a big one. Whether supplied by their parents by their own, or by their own earnings, let boys and girls learn to select and purchase their own clothing, their books, and other necessities. And by keeping an account of their expenses, they will learn as they could learn in no other way the value and the use of money. And that's something you learn by doing, right? You could tell them all day, but when they experience it and it's their own, this is especially for older children, but you can start this as they're young. And when they do it as on their own, they'll, they'll learn the value of money. Let the children be given little pieces of land to cultivate, that they may have something to give as a free will offering. That way it's their own and they're giving. So we're learning frugality, we're learning all sorts of character traits. How about simplicity? and humility. These are hugely important in our culture today. We have a tendency to just kind of praise and overindulge children sometimes. Vanity should not be encouraged by praising their looks, their words, or their actions. Nor should they be dressed in an expensive and showy manner. This encourages pride in them 
and wakens envy in the hearts of their companions. And we will talk a little bit later about encouraging your children. I don't want to take that away. But all of this praise and flattery is not healthy for them. In many families, the seeds of vanity and selfishness are shown, sown in the hearts of children almost during babyhood. Their cunning little sayings and doings are commented upon and praised in their presence. It's hard to not do that because it's so cute. We love it, you know, but we can't be injudicious in our praise and repeating these things and all of a sudden they, they swell with self-importance and then they interrupt conversations. They become forward and impudent and flattery and indulgence fosters their vanity and so on. We don't want to develop that in our children. Helpfulness. That's a big character trait right there. And this is where we get into the concept that very early, the lessons of helpfulness can be taught to the child. As soon as strength and reasoning power are sufficiently developed, give your child duties to perform in the home, which is the concept I've come to absolutely love, the concept of the family firm. This is straight from, from the Lord, that, that our homes are not just places where our kids eat and sleep, and then they go and learn their education elsewhere, and they get their spiritual training at the church, and they get, you know, work outside the home. No, the home is all of this. Firm, church, school, everything. And so this is the way we just do life with our children. Involve your children, especially the youngest ones, in everything you do. This is a quote from 119 of Child Guidance. Keep these children with you. Give your little children something to do. Those are maybe the five of the most important words of the entire seminar. We just kind of have an have a alienation from our children many times. We're not with them as much as we ought to be. They don't watch TV while you fold laundry. They do it too. It's, we do this together, mom and children, boys or girls. You garden together, cook together, clean together. All of life's duties and routines involve the children in them. This is what it means to have the family firm doing life together. And it will take longer for the mother to teach them how to than, than it would to do it herself. Moms go, well, I'd rather just do it myself. It's going to be faster, right? But it's not about efficiency. It's about character development of these children. So let her remember she's laying for their children building the foundation of helpfulness. And this doesn't need to be a painful process. You could become like, you know, child labor drill sergeant, you know, and like have this unpleasant family firm kind of thing. But no, it can so be given that the child will find pleasure in learning to be helpful. Mothers can amuse their children while teaching them to perform little offices of love, little home duties. Isn't that nice? Make the life of your children pleasant. At the same time, teach them to be obedient and helpful, bearing small burdens as you bear large ones. And bring all the pleasure possible into your exercises as teacher and educator of your children. That's an important one, too. Make the kids' lives as pleasurable as you can. You don't want it to be some sort of like grim, you know, strict environment that's just cold and gloomy. No, but the father should help in devising ways by which they may be kept busy in useful labor agreeable to their varying dispositions. So find what the kids might, might thrive at and help encourage some of that. From infancy, they're doing things appropriate for their age and ability. And then I'll give, I'll give you some examples. My son, Levi, we, we, we'd had him doing the dishes with us. And then all of a sudden, we noticed a little bit of a resistance to it. Like, yeah, he, he wasn't really that interested. He'd kind of rather do something else. And so we go, okay, got to make it fun. This is like the language of children. Make it fun. Levi, get your fire hat because there's a fire in the sink. And you're the fireman. And you grab the sprayer. And you're going to spray off all the dishes. He loved it, right? So get a little creative. It went in doubt with boys especially, with our boys. Use a truck. Anything with a truck, and by the way, this is for education. The little child finds both diversion and development in what? Play. So you can't be like, no, this is you know, the Day of Atonement. We must be serious. It's a three-year-old, right? And we, yes, we are inflicting our souls in, this, in these last days. I don't mean to, 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 to diminish that. But children develop in a very serious way through play, through fun. And so this is God-made laughter. God invented tickling. Let's have fun as families too, right? So... Delivery truck games, rescue hero stuff, let them imagine it. You, you come up with it. All sorts of different ways to, to imaginatively, playfully get helping in, in the family firm going. My, my son Levi uh, went to Mackinac Island in Michigan, and we got on the ferry, and so he'd talk about the ferry all the time. So my wife said, Levi, get the, get the, uh, the laundry basket and push it all the way from the bedroom over to the uh, laundry room, and it's the Mackinac Island Ferry. So he, uh, he takes the Mackinac Island Ferry Express over to the laundry room every time, and he loves it. Now, if you're concerned like I am about what you might be getting for Christmas and birthdays, Grandparents are such wonderful gifts from God, but sometimes they're a little injudicious with showering gifts and, and praise upon children. How do, we, how do we go there with family members who just love our kids? They, they don't mean any harm by it. Ask for gifts 
that will be helpful to the kids' development in terms of getting them involved with home activities, getting them outdoors. My mom this year gave my son some kitchen utensils, plastic knives. He was cutting cucumbers with them. It's totally safe. They're just made of like thick plastic, but they have enough grading on them to cut right through. Uh, gardening stuff. My mom gave him like actual gardening shovels and hoes and rakes and stuff to get out in the garden for my son Levi when he was, when he was three. A chef's hat. He helps out in the kitchen. A hat changes everything for a small child. You give him a hat, and it's like, now it's fun. Uh, snow, my mom gave him a snow shovel, so praise the Lord for good grandparents. You've you got to kind of give him some guidance on that, though. Um, if you have to work at the desk, right, sometimes you've got to do some papers, emails, whatever, the budget. Put the kid in a desk next to you, and he's working on his crayons and, and scissors and cutting things or whatever. So they're involved with you and everything. Make it fun. This is just some examples of my family. There's Levi and Silas there uh, doing the wood, stacking of the wood for the wood burner in the winter last year. That stuff, by the way, on the ground, that white stuff is called snow. Those who are from, you don't get snow in Phoenix, do you? Okay, well, anyway, up in Michigan, we get more than we, than we bargain for. But nonetheless, there's Dad and Levi vacuuming together. And, Honey, can you fix the drawer? Yes, I can. Levi, I need your help. Get his, get his construction suit on there. And there he is just washing the dishes doing the vacuuming, and my wife does a great job with, you know, this phrase right here I want to go back to, keep these children with you. This is how you just do life with your kids. Let them ask questions, and in patience, answer them. Give your little children something to do, and let them have the happiness of supposing they help you. If they make mistakes, if accidents happen, and things break, do not blame them. Industriousness. This is a more serious one. This is a little bit for, you know, for the older kids. The little one's helpfulness is the first lesson, but for the older kids from six years old and upward, they should understand it is required of them to bear their share of life's burdens. So we learn, start to learn industriousness as they get a little bit older, which the seeds of that are sown in the early ages as well. To allow a child to take an hour or two in doing a piece of work that can easily be done in half an hour is to allow it to form dilatory habits. So you want to keep things moving and learn how to work properly. And you don't play until after work is done, right? We don't go for a swim in the pond, then work in the garden. We do it the other way around. Work in the garden, get the, get the weeding done. Let us teach them that innocent pleasure is never half so satisfying as it, when it follows active industry. So that's a good one. Self-reliance, though, while we're talking about this issue of work and, and helpfulness and the family firm, industriousness, parents should now encourage their children to become more independent. Serious troubles are soon to be seen upon the earth, and children should be trained in such a way as to be able to meet them. This is one of the reasons we treat, teach them to work, to garden, to grow food, to fix things, to build things, because it's, it's essential in the last days when we have the kind of economic environment that's coming our way that uh, we want to be prepared to meet these challenges. So far as possible, every child should be trained to self-reliance. If they would stand in a position where they shall influence others, they must be self-reliant. And part of this also is perseverance, another essential character trait. Many children, they meet a difficulty and they just kind of jump from one job to another and you know, they never have a whole lot of success because they're not encouraged to press on through the difficulty and really make the job, get the job done. Instead of calling attention to every trifling pain or hurt, divert their minds. Teach them to pass lightly over little annoyances or, or discomforts. My son Levi has heard me say many times, well, he falls over, right? Little kids fall all the time. And it's going to be this big crisis. Oh, poor baby. It's like they're fine, right? So, you know, I kind of, I, I just look at them. Not because I don't love my child. I love them to death. That's why I do this. And I'd say, you're all right, huh? And I'd say, you know what the great thing about falling down is? And he just finishes the sentence from me now because he's heard it so many times is that you can get back up. So, a little lesson for a three-year-old. Even the secular studies are now finding that, that success in life is not tied to academic grades or standardized test scores. Success in life is based upon character, perseverance, work ethic, integrity. This is a big movement within psychology circles, understanding the latest research on child development in this way. So, there are so many character traits, we're not going to cover them all. How do, you, how do you possibly develop character? It's such a big, mammoth, you know, massive thing. Break it down into, into 13 character traits. The 13 that you think are the most essential, and take, take them one, one character trait at a time, dedicate one week to that character trait. So we're just doing helpfulness this week. Or we're doing honesty this week. And we're going to tell stories about it. We're going to bring Bible stories in about it. We're going to, to arrange for situations where it can be learned. We're going to do all sorts of activities and make it your curriculum. You know, if this is really the main thing we're doing as parents, make it our object of study. Now the fifth way <clears throat> that these parents are the true disciples of their children is probably the most important character trait of all, self-sacrifice. If our children can learn to serve others and to be a part of 
the work of God. The parents are training their children to become workers together with God. Then they'll start to get it. They'll start to see that this movement is not just about we believe these truths. No, we believe these truths and that does something in our lives where we share them with others, where we serve others, where we celebrate the risen Christ in our homes for family worship, yes, but also we share the truths of Jesus Christ with the world through our actions, through our service, through our beneficence, and through, through the gospel. In the early years, they can be useful in God's work, caring for the aged and afflicted. And, and a quick story on this. Uh, my friend Cinda Osterman, who you can see her here on the, the How to Raise the Remnant. She's one of the people I had uh, interviewed. She um, had a seven-year-old daughter who was just starting to learn um, to read. I think she was seven, eight, something like that. And um, she, her, her daughter said, I want to give Bible studies. She'd been part of a culture with her parents where this is what's done. And so she, they, they went door to door literally getting Bible studies. And nobody said no to the seven or eight-year-old girl who's asking, can I share some truths with you from the Bible? So what an incredible opportunity. Remember what is said in Great Controversy in Adventist Home 489. It says the children will be the ones that give this last message. I also see, by the way, the canvassing work and the medical missionary work both go on to the very, very end, the close of probation. So the children, canvassing, medical missionary work. If you want to be involved in the work of God in the very, very last days before the close of probation, we're not going to be allowed to hold public evangelistic meetings anymore. But those three will be going forward until the close of probation. So a uh, post office story. This is a fun one. Do you remember the story this morning about the carrots and how, how it rained right after we closed the lid on the carrots and God kept the rain away all day? Well, my son Levi, just we're at the post office and he, he gets up on the counter at the post office and he stamps media mail on the DVDs we're shipping to people. And so the post office ladies all know him and he just starts telling the story. You know, we, we were digging up our carrots, pulling up our carrots, and we, we put them in bins, and, and we put the sand on, and we prayed that God would not let it rain until we were done with the job, and then we put the lid on, and it started raining. So he's testifying here without me arranging for it. I, you know, this is not contrived. This is just him living life. Um, he'd, you know, come in with an owie, and, you know, Jesus healed my owie. So he's witnessing all the time just because that's the world that we were, we're, we're a part of. Aunt Joyce and Uncle Mark, he says, you know, we're going to Aunt Joyce and Uncle Mark's for, uh, for Thanksgiving. And we had been passing out books all throughout Grand Rapids uh, the, previous, the previous week. And he said, we should bring some Steps to Christ. We should bring some Steps to Christ to Aunt Joyce and Uncle Mark. And my family's not Adventist, so this would be a blessing them. We can share these devotionals with them. And that was my son's idea, three and a half. This is something that children can do just as well as us, can't they? Children are to be educated to deny themselves. At one time, I was speaking in Nashville. The Lord gave me light on this matter. It flashed upon me with great force that in every home there should be a self-denial box and that into this box the children should be taught to put their pennies they would otherwise spend for candy and other unnecessary things. So if our children are learning sacrifice, service, gospel work, this is what it means to parent our children. We're doing little missionary training centers in our homes. And as a part of that, the next heading here, guarding their... This is hugely important because it's one thing to be training for character development, but if other things are getting in there contradicting our teaching to them and our training, then that's going to be causing some very serious problems. Did my mic go out? It's kind of in and out, isn't it? Yeah. Fathers and mothers, do you allow your children to associate with other children without being present to know what kind of education they are receiving? Do not Allow them to be alone with other children. Give them your special care. Let the other children visit your children in your presence. And in no case allow these associates to lodge in the same bed or even in the same room. I have tried to keep my children from associating with rough, rude boys. And have presented... Now, here's the thing. Here's how you do it. You don't just say everybody in the world is evil. We can't you know, ever see anybody. You make home attractive. You bring people into your home. We read, I've presented inducements before them to make their employment at home cheerful and happy. By keeping their minds and hands occupied, they have had little, but little time or disposition to play in the street with other boys and obtain a street education. So you see that the, the, the method here is a method of making home a place where they like to be. If they like mom and dad, if it's cheerful and happy and enjoyable there, then they're going to want to be there, right? And there's less attraction to the worldly playmates and associates. We are in the world. I get this. And people tell me this. They say this. Scott... We are in the world. The way that you talk about guarding our children's hearts, it's as if, you know, we're, we, you know, we're just going to get out of the world. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. Let's see. Make sure that's on. Hmm. It's not. Is that a new battery in there? Oh, it's the same batteries. Okay. Okay. Here's the response. You ready for it? 
We're in the world, they say, and we cannot get out of it. But parents, we can get a good way out of the world if we choose to do so. We can avoid seeing many of the evils that are multiplying so fast in these last days. We can avoid hearing about much of the wickedness and crime that exists. The next time somebody says, well, come on, we're in the world. It's not like, well, yeah, we can get out of the world. This isn't talking about going into outer space, obviously. We can get out of the worldliness of the world to the extent that we want to. I have been shown that there should be a sacred shield around every family. As I was thinking about this theme of, the, of a shield, this image of a shield, I thought about you know, what a shield is for. It's for, for blocking the, the onslaught of, of some sort of weaponry coming at you. And it's got this curved shape to it, right? Now, if you were in a rainstorm, and you're, you're just being poured on, there's, there's weather, there's elements, there's hail, whatever, and then you're going to go like that with your shield, right? And your shield turns into a what? A shelter. Now, why did I bring that out? Have you ever heard people say, come on, there's a certain such and such way of parenting, and you're just sheltering your children? As I've thought about that, I used to say that when I was a kid. We'd make fun of the homeschool kids across the road who couldn't go trick-or-treating, go to the movies and whatever. And we'd be like, yeah, look at those families. They're so sheltered. As I look back on that, how foolish was that? We're in the middle of an onslaught, a storm, and here we are making fun of people who are under a shelter. Which is just common sense to get under a good shelter if you're in the middle of a storm, right? So let's take back that word. Next time somebody says, Scott, aren't you worried that you're sheltering your children and teaching people to shelter their children? Like, yeah, I, I, I'm excited about the concept. Like, are you sheltering? How are you sheltering your children well? Because I want to know how to do it better. And like, thank you for noticing that. I'm quite flattered, right? Take back the word. It's not an insult. Don't be intimidated by that or you're sheltering your children. Follow the Lord. And, and we're not here to please God, please men. We're here to please God. From their infancy, the youth need to have a firm barrier built up between them and the world that its corrupting influence may not affect them. Every Christian family should illustrate to the world, the power and excellence of Christian influence. Now that's ironic to the folks that say we're not supposed to be uh, sheltering our children. We're supposed to expose them to the world to be able to influence the world, right? Is that what you've heard? This says the opposite. It's a firm barrier between us and the world that causes us to have influence on the world. Because if we're no different than the world, how are we going to have any influence on them? They go, oh yeah, you're just the same, moving on, right? And it doesn't gain any attention, any interest. But when we are distinct and peculiar in, our, in, in a good way, the word peculiar is, you know, kind of has some negative connotations, but you understand. If we are peculiar people in the sense that we are especially Christ-like, especially loving, especially self-sacrificing, and, and unworldly, that gains some attention and people want to know, what, what are you guys doing differently? So now there is bad sheltering. There, there's good sheltering versus bad sheltering. Bad sheltering is keeping your kids from any difficulties, pain, adversity, or natural consequences in their lives. We don't want to practice that. We want to do the good sheltering, which is keeping them from temptations and, and satanic things from our homes. But we do want them to learn natural consequences in life. We want them to learn uh, the results of sin, that it does degrade and, and ruin people's lives. So we don't need to shelter them from that. Um, by the way, this, this temporary thing of sheltering our children from worldliness is, is temporary. The ultimate goal we read here is since they cannot always have the guidance and protection of parents, they need to be trained to self-reliance and self-control. They must be taught to think and to act from conscientious principle. So the purpose of parenting really is to get your children to the point where they don't need to be parented anymore, right? That's the ultimate goal, to be able to release them from the nest and say, now you can go forth and uh, not be under the, the sheltering protection, but find your own shelter in the Almighty. Guarding their hearts, number two. The fact that these parents are, frankly, very countercultural, they're, they're, they're very different from the rest of the parents around them, even within the church, that fact causes them little stress or concern. They accepted from day one that their parenting would be different from most. So when people look at them and they say, you guys are different, they don't really take that as an insult. There should be less care for what the outside world will say and more thoughtful attention to the members of the family circle. So that it's, it's, are we in this for our children or are we in this to what, what our sisters and mothers-in-law might say? Mothers actually should never allow their sisters or mothers to interfere with the wise management of their children. And we are the parents of our children. God has given us that responsibility. Unlike in that clip you heard earlier where it says we need to have a... 
are of who controls the children. They don't belong to their parents, but they belong to the collective. No, no, no. God has given us that responsibility as the stewards of our children's training and education. The votaries of fashion will never see or understand the immortal beauty of that Christian mother's work. They will sneer at her old-fashioned notions and her plain, unadorned dress, while the majesty of heaven will write the name of that faithful mother in the book of immortal fame. Oh, I like that one. Now, these parents are just, just on-fire parents, right? We, we've gotten that. They're revolutionary parents. They're discipling their children, character development, guarding their children's hearts. But on, this, on the same token, they are, the other side of the coin, they're very balanced. They're not fanatical, extremists, whacked out, you know, pulling their hair out and running around like their hair on fire kind of people. They are, they're just solid Christ-like people that have, that have had success in the research. And so the first way that these parents are balanced is that in the course of spending time with the child, the most important skill was listening to the child. So they're good listeners. Isn't that something? They're very good. They don't just lecture at their children all day. They listen. And they know what they want to know what's on their children's hearts and thoughts and minds. Parents should encourage their children to confide in them and unburden to them their, their heart griefs and their little daily annoyances and trials. Kindly instruct them and bind them to your hearts. Teach them to make you their confidant. Let them whisper in your ear their trials and joys. And do you think that sort of openness will happen if they live in an environment that is just ruled by criticism and, you know, they come to you and you say things like, why did you do that? That wasn't the best idea. Come on, what were you thinking? That kind of thing is really going to shut off that openness and dialogue. So we want to make sure to avoid that. And if they come to you and confess, mom, I have to tell you something. I feel, this is usually older kids, they, you know, start feeling a little guilt about something. And well, I, you know, I need to tell you what I did. At this point, this is not the time to scold and to, to come down hard on them. They're already to the point of repentance and confession on this. So you've, they've already gotten themselves to where you try and get them with punishments if you're trying to be uh, firm with them with discipline. They've already gotten there. The Lord has gotten them there. So when the children have done wrong and, the, the, them, and they themselves are convicted of their sin and feel humiliated and distressed, to scold them for their faults will often result in making them stubborn and secretive. So applaud them for letting the Lord work in their heart to bring them to the point of confession. Another way these parents are balanced is they avoid being too soft and bending. Their children knew that their parents were the boss and were in control. But at the same time, they avoided being too intimidating. It wasn't like, like Nazi boot camp for children at, at their house. It was a warm, loving environment, but mom and dad were in control. Uniform firmness and unimpassioned control are necessary to the discipline of every family. Let authority and affection be blended. What a beautiful statement. It's not sometimes I'm loving and kind and generous and hugging them, and then other times I'm firm and authoritative. No, no, they're blended. They're, they're combined. And so it's not two sides of this, you know, sort of, uh, you know, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde kind of thing where they sometimes see you this way and sometimes that. You are always authoritative and always kind. Fathers, Look at that. Fathers, combine affection with authority, kindness and sympathy with firm restraint. So you're combining them, you see? Um, these two on the screen here, Dr. Donna Havanek, Dr. K. Kuzma, both talk about this concept of combining the, the loving touch, the, the generous, thank you, the, the, the graciousness, combining that with the authoritative, firm parenting. Um, Dr. Donna Havanek calls it uh, authoritative parenting. She says, avoid authoritarian parenting and avoid permissive parenting. Have authoritative parenting. Beautiful blend of the two. Kay Kuzma says, be a benevolent dictator. <laughs> I like that concept. And both parents have to be the same. Because if one parent is over here in the, in the loving, generous, tender, kind, gracious camp, and then the other one is over here with a, we're going to teach these kids some discipline, kind of like intense, you know, in-your-face authoritarian parents, then the kids get confused. The, the parents come together as a unit. There must be no division. But many parents work at cross-purposes, and thus the children are spoiled by mismanagement. It sometimes happens that of the mother and father, one is too indulgent and the other too severe. This is very common. We both want to come toward the, the center of this teeter-totter instead of just moving further and further out on the teeter-totter and saying, well, she's too nice to them. i got to be a little bit harder on them. Or he's so hard on them, i got to be a little bit nicer. And then all of a sudden you fall off the teeter-totter, which is, do you ever have that happen? That's not a fun thing, to fall off the teeter-totter. Somebody gets hit in the jaw with it, I think. What sort of picture of God will our 
children have? Ultimately important question. The only accurate picture of God is stated in these three words. God is love. This is the very nature and character of God in a definitional statement in the form of a noun. God is love. Now, what does love mean? This is the crucial point. If we picture for them a God who deals lightly with sin holds a low standard for his people, is unwilling to rebuke and chasten, then that is not a God of love. As much as people will say it is, and champion, we are presenting a message of the character of God, a God of love, if we have a God who has got a low standard of righteousness, he doesn't want to perform the complete work of sanctification in you, he's not going to be willing to rebuke sin and bring like John the Baptist who came to the Pharisees and said, brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and don't say we can, you know, we're, we're children of Abraham, God can raise up from these stones children of Abraham, from children from Abraham. So God has very strong words for his people sometimes. Because he is a God of love. Those whom I love, I rebuke and chasten. And so they're both of that, both sides. His infinite patience, infinite self-sacrifice, incarnating as a human being, being willing to die on the cross, eternally dead, is what Jesus experienced during moments on the cross. He thought he was going to be blotted out. The most incredible love ever. And the same kind of love that says, I'm not going to leave you the way you are. I want to change you, and I want to confront you with the, 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 the sins in your life so that we can do this work. This is what our children will get if we blend authority and affection, and they need to have that picture of God. It's the most loving picture of God imaginable. Another way these parents are balanced, they meet their children's emotional and physical needs. I want to park here for a little while. This is so important because we're going to talk more about discipline and obedience in the end of the next session. But if we don't get this right, a lot of people jump right to the discipline thing. Give me the strategies for discipline. But if we're meeting our children's emotional and physical needs, a lot of the discipline issues will vanish, which is just fun to see. So let's go through some of the needs. How about physical needs of sufficient sleep and sufficient nutrition? How many of you, even as adults, if you haven't slept enough or eaten right, you notice you get a little more irritable. You're not feeling right. Your, 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 your emotional state is... It's the same thing with kids. And we read from Spirit of Prophecy, parents wonder that children are so much more difficult to control than they used to be, when in most cases, their own criminal management had made them so. The quality of food they bring upon their tables is constantly exciting the animal passions and weakening the moral and intellectual faculties. The importance of regularity in the time of eating and sleeping should not be overlooked. It is essential, especially in youth, that sleep should be regular and abundant. Regular means it should be on a schedule. You shouldn't just eat at erratic times and go to sleep four hours later one night and two hours earlier the next night. No, regularity of sleep and regularity of meals. Eat at regular periods, not tasting anything between meals. This is best for the emotional level, not to mention the physical. After the regular meal is eaten, the stomach should be, not, should be allowed to rest for five hours. Not a particle of food should be introduced into the stomach till the next meal. Now, of course, if you have a newborn baby again, please don't take a quote like that. You know, we have to reason through this. Newborn babies need to eat more than twice a day, right? So um, make sure to, to apply this at the appropriate stage in children's development. But another physical need that is often neglected. Parents, inaction is the greatest curse that ever came upon youth. Inaction. Sitting in a desk, sitting in front of a screen, all day long. It's the greatest curse that ever came upon youth. The health cannot be preserved unless some portion of each day is given to muscular exertion in the open air. Equalize the taxation of the mental and physical powers. What does equalize mean? Make them balanced, equal, make them the same. So for every three hours of study, books, and sedentary pursuits, we want three hours of physicality in the open air, particularly with the, with the, with the children. Small children should be left as free as lambs to run out of doors, to be free and happy, and should be allowed the most favorable opportunities to lay the foundations for sound constitutions. In the early education of children, the greatest attention needs to be given to the physical constitution, that a healthy condition of body and mind may be secured. Now, that's physical needs. There's more physical needs. I'm giving kind of, kind of some, some, some highlights here, the most important. But how about emotional needs? These are huge. We've got to be meeting our children's emotional needs. I, I'm doing a seminar on pornography and overcoming lust also. It's called A Greater Lust. You can check, check out that at the booth as well. We're going to touch a little bit on that tomorrow. But one thing they've found is that a lot of the pornography addicts of, of, of grown men age, a lot of them came from families that were, where they were somewhat emotionally detached. And so, because there was a, not a closeness and emotional intimacy, and so their intimacy starved. They don't have the concept of closeness of relationship. Now, what happens if you're starving for food, and you walk into the gas station, and you see the Twinkies there? 
the Twinkie. Oh, it's posing as food, as if it's real food. And you're going, man, I, I, I need that. And, and, and it satisfies, and it's so incredible. That's what the, the lust issue is in our culture today. Men are intimacy starved, and that poses as intimacy. It tricks the brain, the pleasure receptors. We'll talk about it all tomorrow, but that's hugely important. So we need to be filling emotional needs, like time. This is perhaps the most important thing you can give to your children, other than the gift of the love of Jesus Christ, is just being there with them. All the time. The love cup. I love that concept from Kay Kuzma. Filling their love cup to overflowing. Letting them know how, how special they are to you. That they are worthy of your attention, your sympathy, your tenderness, your time. Secure attachment is what it's called in psychology circles. And it is absolutely essential to all future development of confidence. If children by the age of seven, aren't, even by the age of one or two, aren't securely attached to their mother, there are all sorts of whacked out things that happen emotionally and psychologically in life. That's why we shouldn't put our children in school so early and have them in daycares and things separated from mother. They need that, that contact with mom, that con- consistency and that secure attachment. Adversity is another emotional need, a second one. Believe it or not, children need challenges in life. They need adversity. This is found in the classroom of the remnant. My friend Joshua White helped me put this together and put this out. And you actually find in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology that they, they studied people who had gone through moderate amounts of adversity and people who had gone through intense adversity, like abuse, like, you know, just, just terrible things. And then people that went through no adversity as children. They had an easy life, right? Interestingly, that group had just as much difficulties in life as the abused, abused group, the people who had gone through severe adversity. It was those who experienced moderate amounts of adversity who had the best success in life in terms of weathering the storms of life, being able to handle emotional challenges that come our way and stressors. And it was the people who had an easy childhood, no challenges, no adversity. They didn't have to learn any, any difficult things. Those kids have just as hard time adjusting in life as people who went through cruel adversity. Let the child and the youth be taught that every mistake Every fault, every difficulty conquered becomes a stepping stone to better and higher things. It is through such experiences that all who have ever made life worth living have achieved success. It is obstacles that make men strong. It is not helps, but difficulties, conflicts, rebuffs that make men of moral sinew. Too much ease and avoiding responsibility have made weaklings and dwarfs of those who ought to be responsible men of moral power and spiritual strength. Now, the example of this, my son Levi, at some point, you know, you realize your kid can start putting on his own clothes. And I'm sorry all my examples are like two and three-year-olds. It's just the stage I'm in. But so my son Levi, it's time for him to start learning to put his pants on, his pajama pants on by himself, okay? This is a big, difficult thing. It's like, ah, you know, just physical movements and motor skills are just not all there. It's like, how does this fit? How does this go? And it was kind of a hard thing for him. And so, you know, what we, we could just say, um, you know what? Have fun with that. Go cry it out in, the, in, the, in your bedroom. Figure out those pants. We're going to be over here on the computer or whatever. No, no, no. This is a difficult thing. So I would not do it for him, but I would get down there with him like this. You remember Jesus had the little children on his, on his lap and he descended to the level of the young. I love that quote. With their, they've actually shown in studies that with toddlers, if you talk to them down here rather than up here, it actually makes them more intelligent. They become more intelligent as, as older kids. Just by three feet difference. So you come down here with them, touch them, love them, encourage them. I'm here to help you if you need it. And then they know, okay, I can safely explore and face this challenge, but dad's not going to do it for me because he's, he's stubborn like that. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes people take this hardship thing a little too far. Kids need to learn some hardship. Learn from the school of hard knocks and I'm going to give it to them, right? No, no, no. Hardship does not mean harshness. Harshness has no place in a Christian home at all. So, and it never means like absence from them, you know? They're going to need to learn some hardships, so I'm going to go and just do my own thing, and they're going to have to go it alone. No, no, no. They're in our homes to be with us. As we've read, keep these children with you. Another emotional need is choice. Children need that freedom to be able to choose things for themselves. Uh, Levi has, gets to choose between a couple of items of clothes, and he gets to choose his clothes, not just, you know, free-for-all, chaotic anarchy, like, but my, my wife will put out, Two or three options. And he now asks for that. Mom, can you give me my options? <laughs> it's funny to hear a three-year-old use a word like that. He just repeats the words back that we use. Uh, or, or let them pick some fruits or vegetables at the store each week. You know, we're going to get this and this and this. So there's Levi with a little, little boy shopping cart at the, the store we were at up in uh, Jasper in Canada. Beautiful, beautiful place. But nonetheless, he got to choose the strawberries there and throw them in the cart. Children who are incapable of thinking, acting, or de- deciding from themselves for themselves 
Actually, how did they get that? They, they go forth from their parents to act for themselves, and they are easily led by others' judgment in the wrong direction. So if we just dictate constantly, don't give them choice, don't challenge them to think, then they will become incapable of thinking, acting, or deciding for themselves, and they'll go forth. Oh, well, I just, I've just become so habituated to just following, falling in line, kind of like schooled, like we talked about earlier, the schooling system of America, how that was designed. No, we want our children to become thinkers, not mere reflectors of other men's thoughts. They must be obedient. We'll talk about that. But we want them to become thinking children. How did they get this way, by the way? They have been so long under iron rule, not allowed to think and act for themselves in those things in which it was highly proper that they should be thinking and acting for themselves. So they have now no confidence in themselves to move out upon their own judgment, having an opinion of their own. These are emotional needs that we need to be meeting for our children. Another emotional need is structure. Children thrive on a routine. Children of all ages thrive on a routine. The Bible says, let all things be done decently and in order. And so are our children living in an environment where they never know what's happening next? They, they're, they're, they're constantly being, you know, just kind of this, this comes at me this way and this comes at me that way. And I don't know what's going to happen or where things are. If they live in that chaotic environment, they feel very insecure. They feel very scared. And so you want to have order in their lives as much as possible. Haphazard work in the home will not pass the review in the judgment. Wow. As far as possible, it is well to consider what is to be accomplished through the day. Make a memorandum, this is a list, right, of the different duties that await your attention and set apart a certain time for the doing of each duty. I kind of like that. That's good advice, isn't it? And so let me give you a sample day's schedule, all right? Schedule out your day with your family and then there's some order in it and you know what to expect. And this isn't iron rigidness. I mean, the Lord may lead this way or that, but you have a general idea of where you're going. And you always start with the previous evening. The success of tomorrow is based upon how we end today. Did we get to bed on time? Did we get things cleaned up? Or are we waking up tomorrow just already spinning our wheels and chasing our tail, right? So 5.30 p.m., this is just a sample. This isn't like inspired. This is, you know, something you could do. 5.30 p.m., pick up, clean up, Get ready for, you have your evening worship before you go right to bed because evening worship in every family, there should be a fixed time for morning and evening worship at an early hour of the evening, we read. That was new to me. I didn't catch that my first time through. So we moved evening worship a little bit sooner because then the kids aren't, you know, so tired. That's, that's some good advice. They're in better shape earlier in the evening. 6.15 bath time, 6.45 bedtime, 7 o'clock then. So the kids are going to bed at an early hour. It gives mom and dad a little bit of time to catch up on some things that you're not doing and you know, neglecting the kids during the day. Um, always good for mom and dad to have time to connect. If you don't have a strong marriage, then it's really going to be difficult to be you know, co-parent with this person. This is your ministry partner. This is your, your, your spouse. You are one of, one of one flesh. So you want to get connected and get connected with God. Maybe there's a good bedtime. How about the lights should be put out at 9.30, right? Uh, 5, 5 a.m., you can rise, do your personal devotions. We talked about that first. If we're not connecting with Christ in the Word, then all the parenting strategies in the world will be useless. So 6 a.m., you can maybe get your exercise prep for the day, and then the kids are up maybe around 7. By the way, if you have babies, you're like, yeah, right. <laughs> I know, I know. This, is, this doesn't always work out perfectly. But the idea is you're scheduling it. And, you know, get up with the kids right away. Get together with them. Uh, we like to, in our house, when they get up, uh, my son Levi has a little light in his, in his room that, that turns on at 7. And so he, he's supposed to try to go back to sleep if he wakes up at 5.30. He, some, he used to get out, is it daytime yet? Because in Michigan it's dark till you know, 8 a.m. And So we have that little light go on. And then he comes out and we, we read the Bible stories or Creation Illustrated and have him drink his water and have this good snuggle time. Child guidance says, in the morning the Christian's first thoughts should be upon God. I like that. Then the day goes on. Before the fast is broken, have morning worship. So we want to ideally put that uh, before breakfast where possible and, and thank the Heavenly Father for his protection during the night. Ask him for his help and guidance to watch and watch care during the day. By the way, I was doing this while my son was, was sitting there with me. I said, Levi, I'm going to teach the people about morning worship and how we're supposed to ask God for his protection and his guidance during the day. And he adds, and give us obedient hearts. So he's picked up on the fact that we lead him in that prayer in the morning typically. Oh, you got your breakfast clean up. Kids person, we put our personal devotions after breakfast for the kids just because we want to connect with them and not have them by themselves first when they wake up. And again, we're not the example. This is just one, this is just a sample. We don't even do all this on the sample. I just put this together. It's kind of the direction I'd like to go, honestly. But anyway, then you got the morning for your doing whatever, getting outside, working in the garden, going, you know, serving, whatever, visiting people. 
Um, we, we do a rest time in our home. Our three-year-old doesn't nap. He has a, he has a rest quiet time where he just ha- you know, kind of does some things on his own for a little while and then um, gives mom a little bit of chance to have a breather. And then um, we, we do the, you can do the two-meal thing with older kids if, 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 if that fits within, within what works for you all. And then um, work-play exercise, you can do the, have the afternoon that way. So there's just an example, sample day schedule of what a way you could go. Now, just a couple quick emotional needs, and we'll wrap up. Fun. Kids need fun. If parents would gather their children close to them, even be involved in their little games, their little sports, and be a child among them, their children would be very happy. They would respect their parents more if we're having fun with our children. Bring all the pleasure possible into your exercises of being a parent or a teacher, which we all are if we're parents. We're teachers too. Affirmation and commendation. God said that to Jesus. The father did. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. He had affirmation for his son, which I talked about earlier. Smile, parents. Smile, teachers. Remember that quote? Giving them that sunshine, the commendation, that encouragement of sunshine of kind words. And they appreciate this kind of sympathy, this encouragement, but we shouldn't give them a love of praise. And you might wonder, well, how do you avoid giving them a love of praise? If you're commending them and encouraging them and telling them that they've done a good job, how do you do that in a way that they don't become, you know, proud? Well, here it is. Be kind and tenderhearted, showing Christian politeness, thanking and commending them. So you say, thank you for letting Jesus work in you that way, that you were so obedient or that you came and confessed or whatever. Last year, actual jobs and accomplishments. An internal, real sense that their help and their labor matters. If you're giving them jobs in the family firm, they're going to develop a healthy sense of self-worth and self-confidence. Because they did something, and they matter, and they're a part of this family firm. Of course, physical touch, just like Jesus, who had the kids up on his lap. When we meet all these emotional needs... The stuff we're going to talk about at the end of next session starts to fade away and we do need to discipline and we do need to require obedience and we're going to learn how to do that best from Spirit of Prophecy. Uh, But we we can really just fill their lives with enough physical and emotional needs, enough time with mom and dad that that a lot of that starts to dissipate. So I've gone just a couple minutes over, so let me pray and then we'll have our break. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the counsels you've given to us and We just pray for these children right now. All the children represented in this room by all the people from various places and walks of life. Lord, you know the needs and the particular um, unique situations that all are in. And I pray that you'd give us wisdom to apply your counsels in in ways that are are reasoned, balanced, faithful, and uh, best for, for our children. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at the cross in phoenix arizona gyc a supporting ministry of the seventh day adventist church seeks to inspire young people to be bible-based christ-centered and soul-winning christians to download or purchase other resources like this visit us online at www.gycweb.org